Well, in a, a, a couple weeks, we're going to actually start a new series, but we are still in the, in the Gospel of Luke. The new series is going to be uh, called Connect, and we're going to be looking really at how God, through Jesus Christ, connects to us, and then we're going to be learning and thinking about, first of all, how we can connect to God, and then how we connect to one another using Christ as somewhat of a model. So well, that's going to take us right up into Christmas time, um, and obviously connections there between Jesus Christ. Uh, be his birth and God connecting to us through Jesus. And so um, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be called Connect. And I think it's really going to help us with our year theme, which is being commissioned. One of the key uh, underlying elements of our being commissioned in the community is for us to be able to connect with the people around us. And so I'm excited for how that's going to help us and guide us. But if you'd open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke for today, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And if you do need a Bible, we've got uh, multiples of them back there. Just raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. Um, don't be shy. Just raise your hand. We'll hand a Bible to you. People do it all the time. Don't worry about it. Um, raise your hand. Give you a Bible. And in that Bible, it's on page 752. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27 is where we're going to be. Now, uh, as Jesus is on his way to the cross, we're, we're, we're coming towards the end of the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to do this other series up until Christmas. And then after Christmas... We will finish the Gospel of Luke. We'll finish it um, right at Easter time. And so very excited. We're going to be going through, you know, the, 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 the crucifixion and the resurrection um, right around Easter time. We'll be finishing up the Gospel of Luke. Um, so uh, that will be wonderful. Um, be a big accomplishment, the largest book in the New Testament. And we'll, be, we'll have gone through the whole thing. But we are going to take a break. Um, but as we're getting towards the end here, we're going towards the cross. If you've been with us, you know that Jesus continues to encounter uh, various uh, religious leaders who challenge him in his ministry. They ask him hard questions. They, they sort of pull out the hot-button questions of the day, and they try to trip up Jesus and, and get him to, to say things that might incriminate him so that maybe um, the, the officials could come and take him away and keep him from doing what he's doing because all the crowds are following. They love what he has to say. They want to follow Jesus, and so it's threatening these religious leaders because they're in control, and they don't want this guy coming along. So we've had the Pharisees challenge him. We've had the chief priests challenge him. We've had the scribes come and challenge him. And now some people called the Sadducees are going to come and challenge Jesus. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit more about who the Sadducees are in a minute. But the main thing in this text about the Sadducees is that they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. And they're going to use that to try and engage Jesus and trip him up. But in some ways, I have to say, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in a, in a minute or two, we can connect in with the Sadducees in their lack of belief in the resurrection. Here's why. We are oftentimes, you know, functional Sadducees. In other words, we go through our daily life, we, everything is so right in front of us, this life is so gripping that we forget about the next life, and we don't think about it properly or enough to let it shape the way that we live in this life. And so this is going to be our connection point with this text is through the Sadducees. Like the Sadducees, we fail to think enough about the resurrection. And of course, this whole conversation as they're leading up to the cross is a beautiful foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to accomplish on that cross and then his resurrection. And so it's almost like we're getting the concept of resurrection out in the air here just before Jesus goes to the cross and then is resurrected. So it's a wonderful foreshadowing of what's coming. Now, the Sadducees, as I said, are, they're, they're an interesting uh, group. They're, they're one of the subsets of the religious leaders. So there were lots of different types of religious leaders in Israel in that time. And the Sadducees are one particular type. They were the aristocrats 
of the religious leaders. They were, in many respects, the ones who had the highest position. They were wealthy. They had power. They, the, they enjoyed the status quo. It worked well for them because they were sort of at the top of the heap. And so they liked things the way that they were. Now, they also tended to be fairly conservative, uh, and they only really looked to the Torah to develop their theological understanding, uh, to understand who God is. They only looked to the Torah. Now, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they discounted the rest of it. They just, if you were going to argue with them, you needed to go back to what they, uh, they believed in, which was the first five books of the Torah. So just sort of tuck those little tidbits away in your mind about the Sadducees. And as we read through this, you're going to see how they apply. So here we are, verse 27 in chapter 20 in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus and the Sadducees says this. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, that's true. Moses did write that. And that sounds a little bit odd to us. Um, but in a world where marriage was really the, the security net for your existence and, and, and where the idea of carrying on the family name was highly, highly valued, it makes sense that this would have been the case. And so this was the case, that if, if, a, if a man died, then his brother was to take uh, take his wife and make sure that the line was continued. Verse 29. Now, there were seven brothers. So um, the Sadducees want to trip Jesus up, um, and so they come with this really clever problem. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. So Jesus, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Very clever. You want to look at it and go, okay, guys, is that really the best you can come up with? Um, But it is, and they're they're trying to trip Jesus up and, and try to get him to answer this in a way that's going to incriminate him, and maybe the crowds will say, oh, he's not all that, and they'll stop following him, and and the status quo will be maintained so they can keep their power. Uh, Now, this is a hot-button issue, right, This for for the day, because there was a big disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not, and so you can imagine they would argue back and forth, back and forth. Uh, And and, and so the Sadducees are saying, well, let's put Jesus right in the middle of this debate, and he'll say something stupid, and then the people won't want to follow him, and we'll be fine. Well, here's Jesus' reply in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore. They cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels who don't die, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, Jesus goes on to say. Now, interesting, there are many places in the Old Testament where Jesus could have argued for the existence of the resurrection. 
but he chose to meet the Sadducees on their own turf. So he goes all the way back to the Torah to Moses to meet them where they would have agreed with him and to argue from there that the resurrection does exist. So even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So the line of argument for Jesus is that that God is the God, present tense, is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If they had died and they no longer existed, he would would have been the God of them. But since he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob, um, then, then that shows that they must still exist because he still is the God. It's present tense. He still is their God. If they were dead, he would no longer, he would have been their God. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. They were convinced. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Now, this is the end of the questions for Jesus, the fifth time that Jesus has been challenged by these religious leaders, and it's the end of the time of questioning uh, for him. And what's really neat is that next week, we'll get to this, Jesus is now going to turn the tables, and he's going to ask them a tricky question, and they're not going to be able to come up with the answer uh, to it. And Jesus is going to show them something very significant about himself. Um, But he sort of has silenced them all now. They've all come at him with their best questions, And every single time, Jesus demonstrates, again, that he's the smartest human being that ever lived, and he has an answer for every one of their questions, Um, and it's beautiful. So here's the thing. What Jesus is doing here is he's calling us, and what Luke is doing by, by telling us this particular interaction here is he's calling us to think about the resurrection. And so what I want to do this morning is just call us really to set our minds on the resurrection perhaps more than we, we have been. Like those Sadducees who, who, uh, who had a tendency to, to disregard the possibility of the resurrection, we have that same tendency. And so what does it mean for us to set our minds on the resurrection? And how will that shape the way we move through this earthly life? If we think about the resurrected life, how will that shape the way we move through this earthly life and change it and transform it and make it more what God intended it to be? So I've got uh, just three statements. The resurrection is real. The resurrection changes everything, and so set your mind on the resurrection. The resurrection is real. It changes everything, so set your mind on it. And there's really sort of an apologetic uh, point here, a theological point here, and then a practical point in these three different ones. So first of all, quickly, the resurrection is real. The resurrection is taught throughout the Bible all the way from the beginning. We've heard from now from Moses. If we were to go to Daniel, we could read about the resurrection in the book of Daniel. And then, of course, Jesus teaches about the resurrection. And then, of course, he is resurrected. And so um, that's a fairly powerful teaching tool. Uh, and so, um, so we have the resurrection all the way through the Bible. Now, I will grant to you, and those of you who are perhaps with us this morning and you are seeking questioning, asking, wondering about Christianity, um, and this is new for you, I will grant to you, uh, and we all should, that it's an unusual concept, this idea of the resurrection. But it is confirmed over and over in the Scripture. So if we're going to take Christianity on face value, then we've got to grapple with this idea of the resurrection somehow. And I want to explain just a little bit of how uh, people in the past have grappled with this. It's unusual, but, but deeply confirmed throughout Scripture. First of all, people talk about the character of Jesus himself. Here's this man 
who is so wonderful, so wise, so smart, so amazing. Nobody ever thought, uh, as one pastor likes to say, nobody ever thought of the thing that Jesus should have said, right? Everything he said was, was just perfect. And so he's got this person that looms over history amazingly, um, said all the most wonderful things, and, 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 and yet he talks about resurrection. And so how do you reconcile the character of Jesus with this unusual concept of the resurrection? And so you have to make a choice. Either Jesus is off base, or given the character and the quality of the person, then maybe he's onto something here. And so that's one way for us to, to absorb and accept the resurrection. Um, you also have to go to the typical questions that people ask. Well, where, is the, where was the body of Jesus? If the religious leaders could have just surfaced the body of Jesus after he, was, uh, after he died, then it would have quelled the whole issue altogether. And, they, and, and nobody, we wouldn't be sitting here gathered here this morning because Jesus would not have been raised from the dead and it would have been proven. But that didn't happen. Nobody could find the body. And we look at the movement that occurred on the basis of what happened. Uh, you had these people who, who were, were frail, um, incompetent, uh, the disciples I'm talking about, um, scared, uh, people who, who tend to trip up over themselves over and over again uh, on the front side of the resurrection. But on the back side of the resurrection, they're transformed into these radical disciples who turn the world upside down literally in a, in a very short span of years. So how do you explain the radical transformation in the disciples? And one of the most compelling explanations is that, oh, well, maybe the resurrection really did happen and it transformed these people. If they knew that Jesus hadn't raised from the dead, what accounts for the radical change in the way in which Christianity spread at that time? They must have seen something miraculous that changed them. And then lastly, and this personally is probably the one that that most speaks to me, and that is that the resurrection fits so perfectly in the framework of God's redemptive plan. So if you were to look back at the history of what God is doing, um, you see that the resurrection, just, it just fits perfectly at the center of it all. I don't know if you had this experience where you find uh, some sort of object that you don't know what it's for, and you pick it up and you look at it and you're turning it around, and it just seems like, what is this thing? This is kind of ridiculous. Um, and you try to imagine what it could be for, and it seems so unusual seems so strange. And then somebody comes along and says, oh, that's for this. And you begin to look at it in a different light. And maybe you get to see that object in the place where it's supposed to be, in a piece of machinery, say. And you see how the the whole piece of machinery works perfectly because this particular object is at the very center of it. The resurrection is kind of like that. It's this unusual sort of thing, but when you see it in context of the whole sweep of God's work in the world, you see that it becomes sort of the central focal point. Then it starts to lose uh, its unusual character, and you start to realize that, wow, this is amazing how this all fits together. Look what God was doing, speaking about this way back in the Old Testament, speaking about Jesus, prophesying what Jesus would be and how he would, and when you see how it all fits together, and we're all on this journey of seeing that more and more and more. The more we understand God's big redemptive plan, the more we see how this, what was initially unusual, resurrection fits into it and makes perfect sense. And so the more you sit with it in that light, the more it makes sense. Now, um, we believe in the resurrection, and the resurrection brings hope, but we don't believe in the resurrection merely because it brings hope. In other words, the resurrection is not wishful thinking on our part. The resurrection is uh, a fact, a reality uh, that we place our trust in, we believe, and then we're hopeful because of it. 
Okay? It's not just simply wishful thinking and hopeful, at least in our construction, our understanding of what's going on here. So uh, on that light, and, and I grant that for all of us, the, taking this is a, is a step of faith, but it's not blind faith. It's a reasoned, calculated faith to say that the resurrection is real. The resurrection is real. But we must move on. That resurrection, now to the theological point, it changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. And we have to engage our imaginations if we're going to think about the resurrection and what it changes. Um, the Sadducees had an imagination problem. They, they were thinking about what the resurrection could be if it existed, and they didn't think deeply enough about it. And so what Jesus did is he came along and he pressed it more deeply. He said, no, you're not imagining what it's like enough because people don't die and therefore um, they don't need to be married and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so thinking about resurrection life calls us to engage our imaginations. Perhaps one of the greatest uses of our imagination is to think about the resurrection life and what it will be like. God gave us these wonderful imaginations that we have. And perhaps one of the greatest uses of it is to think about what it will be like. Now, I want to say this because there's a lot of misconceptions about the resurrection life and what it will be like. That at the same time, it's more similar to what you've experienced than you probably grant. And it's also more different than what you know than you've probably granted. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we think about the resurrection life, oftentimes, and I'm not sure how we got this, it's floating around our culture, but we think of disembodied souls floating in the clouds, right? Somehow playing harps, maybe. And, and so when, when we ask, are you excited about heaven? You say, eh, a little. You know, I don't really have a lot of experience floating around in the clouds playing the harp. That's something I'm longing to do. Um, and so you kind of have this tension where you want to think about heaven, but you're a little, you're like, eh, I'm not sure. It sounds like really long to be doing that, right? Um, and so you have this tension because it's so, it's so, you think of it as being so different from anything that you know that you can't connect and your imagination has a hard time making that leap. So, so it is different, but it's first of all similar. In other words, um, it's not about clouds. We won't be traveling along clouds in heaven. We'll be traveling along streets, just like we know. We walk on streets. We know what streets are. There's a familiarity there. And heaven will have streets. It's just that they'll be of gold. So, so heaven is, is more similar to what you were thinking than what you were thinking. But it's also more different because there will be streets, something that you know and you can connect with. It's just that they'll be of gold. Now multiply that across everything. There'll be relationships, but they'll be perfect. There'll be food, but it'll be Chez Panisse every single time, right? <laughs> um, or better, or I mean, wow, Chez Panisse is just asphalt compared to gold, right? Think of that. See, we've got to engage the imagination to think about heaven. So it's more similar than we think, but it's also more different than we have often given credit at the same time. And that's a very important thing to hold on to. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven, which um, is is really uh, amazing in this respect. Spends a lot of time thinking about this. And he says this, In order to get a picture of heaven, which will one day be centered on the new earth, and by that he means it's not going to be floating in the sky. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It's a physical place where we're in our physical bodies with no ailments and we're living and moving 
He says, which will one day be centered on the new, new earth in order to get a picture of heaven. You don't need to look up at the clouds. You simply need to look around you and imagine what all this would be like without sin and death and suffering and corruption. That's how you imagine heaven. It's not so different that we can't even comprehend it or connect with it. It's, it's what we know just on steroids and perfect. Okay? So when we go back to the text and Jesus says that they cannot die anymore. Those people are in heaven. We begin to tease that out. They're like angels. They have all eternity. What an amazing statement. They cannot die anymore. How does that change life? Think of the most mundane kind of illustration. Imagine you're in heaven and you're waiting for somebody to meet you. You're in your resurrection life. And the person, you're waiting because I don't know if you wait if, there's, if life is eternal, right? And that person is, quote, unquote, late. So, again, I don't know if there can be lateness when you're living in eternal life. Um, now, if you were on earth, how would that strike you? You would be stressed because you have lots of things to do, and this person is wasting your precious time, and you need to get these things done. You'd be miffed because in your pride, you'd be frustrated that the person stood you up or is late and doesn't respect you, and you know how we go down these paths when somebody's late. Um, I mean, I don't, so don't worry if you're late for me. I'm not going <laughs> to. No. Um, but, and so we, we would be miffed, and then we would be disappointed because isn't it true that meeting with somebody is often what you look forward to in life? in the blandness of it and you're hoping that this connection with this person will somehow bring something interesting into your life and fulfill that hole in your heart that you're feeling as you're going about your regular day and the person's not there and so you're, you're grieving, you're disappointed. So you're stressed and you're miffed and you're disappointed. Now take the time equation out of that. Now you have all eternity. How does that appear to you in heaven? You're not stressed when the person is quote unquote late because You've got all the time in the world to do whatever it is you think that you need to do afterwards. You're not miffed because you're humble now. You're not a prideful, arrogant person anymore who thinks everybody owes you and your time. And so you're relaxed. And you're not disappointed because you were never expecting this encounter to fill the hole in your heart anyway. Right? You see how reflection, the most mundane kind of thing. Now multiply that across the millions of kinds of interactions that you can think about in your life or the millions of kinds of objects that you have, all of it is redeemed. It's all transformed. It's, it's what you know, but now it's perfect the way it was intended to be. And so Jesus goes on. He says, they cannot die. And because they cannot die, there's no marriage because a big part of marriage is procreation. And so that's not necessary because people don't die. And so, but we mustn't think that there's diminished relationship because we don't marry. I don't think that that means we're not going to know the people that we love and there's not there going to be some diminishing of relationship. No, it'll only be better. Um, and so this whole question that the Sadducees bring to Jesus is moot. They haven't grasped the resurrection fully. They're still trying to think about the resurrection life in the categories of this earthly life. And by doing so, they get it all messed up. And Jesus... He says, no, it's more different than you realize. It's more beautiful and more wonderful than you have given credit. And he explodes their question. It's more radical and wonderful than you've thought. 
And because this is the nature of heaven, of the resurrection life, then it means, the last point, that we should set our minds on it more and more so. Because thinking about the resurrection life changes how we live today. I would say that the Sadducees, in part, were discouraged from reflecting on the resurrection life because they had all the earthly comforts that one could want. You ever notice that relationship? I made a little graph here um, for you math types. Um, Now, there has been no research that's gone into this graph at all. There's no data to speak of, but it's my impression, okay, graphed out. And that is that the the more earthly comfort you have, the tendency, and and this isn't always the case, but the tendency is that you will be less heavenly minded. And the less earthly comfort you have, the tendency is that you'll be more earthly, excuse me, heavenly minded. Now... Um, when I was in Africa this summer in Rwanda, teaching and working with the, with the pastors there, uh, you've heard this, we would take a break from the conference, and within five minutes, man, the music would be going, and they would be singing and dancing, just like nobody's business, and just the joy would fill this room. And I would ask the question, what, is, what are we singing about? Because I'd be on there dancing and trying to sing, too. What are we singing about, everybody? And inevitably, they'd say, we're singing a song about heaven. Almost all of our songs are about heaven. And then one of them said to me, because life in Africa is really hard. These guys who are at this conference, they had walked two days, some of them, to be at this conference. They got one meal a day when they were at this conference, and they would heap it like this because there wasn't going to be more food later on. And what they did with that was to let it push them to think more and more about the resurrection life. And so they sing songs. And those strong reminders propelled them through the difficulty and the challenge of the life that they were facing. And so we find, I think, that this is the case. that The less we have of earthly comforts, the more easy it is for us to think about heaven. And the more we have of earthly comforts, then the harder it is for us to think about heaven. Now, that means something for us living in this day in the United States, right? Um, we are essentially the Sadducees. If you, look at, if you look at the world around us, we are the Sadducees in, in a large way. We have all the meals that the Sadducees would have had, right? How many of us have missed a meal, not because we chose to, but because we had to recently? We have the wealth that the Sadducees had. And so we have that earthly we have those earthly comforts. You know, um, if you make $50,000, um, you are in, what is it, the top 0.31% of earning in the world. That's not 31%, that's 0.31%. If you make $100,000, you are in the top 0.08% of salaries in the world. Okay? So I know, you know, we might look around us and say, well, I don't make very much compared to the other people, but... Compared to the world, we are all Sadducees. We are so, we are so wealthy. We have so much. And then, um, uh, and I don't know if the Sadducees had a lot of stuff, but we have a lot of stuff. 
um, read, heard this week that if you were just to take all of the self-storage areas that we have in the United States, you could give every person in the United States seven square feet to live in, to be in. And that's just for the stuff that we can't fit in our house because there's too much of it, right? So, so all these indications, if we look at the reality of it, we are way to the right on the chart. You don't have to put it back up. We're way to the right on the chart. We have this, this earthly sensibility. We're, we're, we have these earthly comforts. And, and I'm not trying to diminish that we don't face real challenges. I know that we face real challenges. There's real hardship in this life. And yet at the same time, we have to acknowledge to some degree the reality of the earthly comforts that, that we face. Now, um, we need to be aware then what this does to our focusing on heaven. And I want to jump then quickly to how do we, as people who are way to the right on the earthly comfort scale, how do we focus more on the resurrection life? Because it's fundamental to the way that we walk through this life. The more that we're attached to this world, the less that we can be attached to God's call in our lives. The more we're entrapped and stressed and filled with anxiety, the less we're able to release the things that we need to release so that God's work can continue. The less that we're able to just give of ourselves and be generous of who we are. All of that is attached to our being connected to the the resurrection life. That our heart would be connected to it. So it's really important that we, we maintain this connection. And yet it's so hard for us because of where we are. And one of the things that um, I think we can do, well, let me just tell you, Randy Alcorn uses this illustration that I think is very powerful. He says when he goes to an aquarium and he sees a fish in the aquarium, he knows that that's not the environment that the fish was intended to be in. And it makes him a little sad, right? The fish was intended to be in the ocean. That's what it was made for. Now, push that, tweak that, a little bit. Think about the aquariums that we often have in our house, okay? There's a fish in there, and there's a rock cave, but it's made out of plastic, right? It's just, it's really not a rock cave. It points to a rock cave, and the fish swims in out of it, and that's what the fish knows. But if the fish were to ever see a real rock cave, because of that experience, the fish would know, oh, that's the real deal, It's so much better, right? That's how this life is to work for us. And I think this is the key to our getting our minds focused in heaven. That if we can see that all that we're really seeing around us is the plastic rock cave that points to the real rock cave in heaven, then we can go through our earthly experience in this life to a deeper setting of our mind on what God has for us in the resurrection life. And so the things of this life become signposts of the things of the... Everything becomes a signpost of the things of the next life when we make the connection between the two so that that heaven's not so different. It's what we know, but better, but perfect. This is just an impoverished version of the resurrection life that lays ahead for us in Jesus Christ. And by doing so, we turn everyday moments into reflection on heaven. See, that's the key, is to see how this life points to the next one. Randy Alcorn goes on to to write this. He says, we think of heaven as unearthly. Our present lives seem unspiritual. 
like they don't matter. When we grasp the reality of the new earth, our present earthly lives suddenly matter. Conversations with loved ones matter. The taste of food matters. Work, leisure, creativity, and intellectual stimulation matter. Rivers and trees and flowers matter. Laughter matters. Service matters. Why? Because they are eternal. To me, that's the key. To see all these as signposts of the resurrection life. And as we do, we are going to become a different kind of people who walk through this world with less fear, less anxiety, more generosity, more openness, more love, more ability to just die to self and be the people that God intended us to be originally because we're not, we're not banking our existence on this earthly life. We're looking forward to the next one. It's going to be infinitely greater. And so in the process of things, Jesus has this conversation with the Sadducees and then he goes to the cross, and then lo and behold, Jesus is raised from the dead. What does that mean for us? As people who are contemplating this new way of living, of, of getting our minds into the resurrection life more, what does it mean that Jesus raised the dead? What it means is that we have a harbinger. God, in his grace, has given us confidence that what we're talking about this morning is really true because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This weird thought comes to my mind. I think of a boy whose father is gone on a business trip for a long time, and the boy misses his father very, very much. And he comes home from school, and he comes around the corner, and what does he see in the driveway of his house? He sees his father's car. And what does the boy know immediately when he sees his father's car in the driveway? The daddy's home. And I picture this boy running home, and he knows. He hasn't seen daddy yet, but he knows that the car means dad's in the house. And I can't wait to see him. And he runs home, and he bursts through the door. And why does he run? Why does it change the way he walks home? Why is his demeanor completely changed? Because he saw the car. And friends, the resurrection is the car, okay? To show us, to convince us. It's this symbol. It's, the, it's we know what's coming because we see the resurrection. And so we can run. It changes our demeanor. It changes who we are, how we walk through this life what we hold on to, what we love, what we're willing to risk and give up for the sake of God. Lord, would you help us to hold on to the resurrection? I pray you would take the imaginations that you've given us and turn them towards the beautiful task of imagining life in the resurrected realm thinking through how much better it's going to be, how different it's going to be, what's going to be gone that's painful in this life, what's going to be there that we're missing. There are signposts all around us. As we walk out of this room today, we will encounter people who, if we were to see them in heaven, 
we would think of them as awe in their resurrected bodies. We're going to encounter the nature, creation, the world that you've placed around us. And it speaks of, of something more wonderful and beautiful and glorious to come. We get to go out and, and work and make things and redeem things and create things and And all of that's part of what you wired into us. And someday we'll get to do that without there being thorns and thistles in the midst of it, without it being cursed, but it'll be beautiful imitating you and your creativity and your redemption. And we can go on and on and on. Lord, push deep into our imaginations the glory of heaven. Make us homesick. And then send us out fearlessly into this world to be the disciples you've called us to be. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.